Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in a new study. We started last week called the Master's Bunch. If you have a bulletin here, go ahead and pull those out. There's ways for you to follow there. If you're at home and uh, you have a device that you're following uh, the scripture on, on the Bible app, you can also go to the uh, menu and to the events and follow along the notes there. Uh, we are uh, starting this series. It's a verse-by-verse study we're doing through the New Testament book of Ephesians. So in the New Testament, you're going to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right after John is what? Acts, and then? And then? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then I gave you a way to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. All this week I've been having a hankering for popcorn, you can ask Libby. So Friday I broke down and I bought some popcorn and I realized it's because I've been saying go eat popcorn to myself. So um, that's free, that's not even in the notes. Uh, I got a note from someone, I think it was uh, Libby's mom that said the way she remembered it was great electric power company. So, huh? That's how Libby learned it. So however you're learning the Bible, uh, we're in Ephesians today. Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul. He is in prison while he's writing this book, and he's writing it to uh, a group of followers in the city called Ephesus. Earlier in his life, he had spent some time in Ephesus, and so Ephesus here on the map, you can see, is located in what is known as modern-day Turkey. You can see Greece and Athens there to the left, and you can see the the arrow that indicates Paul's third missionary journey from Antioch to Ephesus. Ephesus is the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It's the major thoroughfare in the Roman Empire, and because of its very strategic location, it becomes a very multicultural city. There's a lot of diversity there. It's a cosmopolitan city, and it's bustling with activity and influence. Now, on Paul's second missionary journey, he witnessed the birth of the church there. New followers of Jesus Christ gathered together, and the church in Ephesus was birthed. And when he returned on his third missionary journey, he actually spent three years there in Ephesus working to establish this new church for the Ephesians. It really became the center for evangelism and for missionary work to the surrounding areas. And so later in his life, Paul is arrested, he's writing from a Roman prison, and he's writing to these uh, Ephesians, reminding them about the gospel, reminding them to stay uh, true to the truths of the gospel, encouraging them with the blessed hope that the gospel brings. We talked about this last week, Paul's not writing to address any problems like maybe other New Testament books. What he's doing is he's laying a clear doctrinal uh, groundwork for what the gospel is and then how it should impact every part of your life. What is the gospel? How does our life fit into God's master plan? And then how do we live out that plan in all of our relationships? So we talked about how the gospel, uh, the, go- the book of Ephesians is divided in two parts. So we are in the first section. Uh, we're going to look at the second half of the first chapter of Ephesians. And in this first section, we're really looking at the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. When we get to section 2 in chapter 4, you'll notice that most translations of your Bible in Ephesians chapter 4 begin with the word, therefore. 
And I had a pastor growing up that would say, whenever you find the word therefore, you should probably look to see why it's there for. And what Paul is doing is saying this. Here's the beauty and the majesty of the gospel for the first three chapters. Therefore, this is how it impacts every part of your life. So the way you parent should be influenced by the gospel. The way you handle your money, the way you handle your employees or your uh, employers. In fact, if the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, you're living an incomplete version of the gospel. And that's something God never designed for us to do. The gospel was not just for the moment of salvation where we receive the gift of salvation and we receive the blessed hope. In fact, the gospel is supposed to permeate every single area of our life. And so the gospel should affect every single one of our relationships and it should reshape every part of our life. We talked about how the master's plan is to have a family of adopted and restored human beings united, unified in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. What's beautiful about that is that picture of a family is given way early in Scripture. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 12, this is where um, Abraham and God are having a conversation, and God gives Abraham some promises. He says, uh, you're family, your seed will outnumber the sands at the seashore. They'll outnumber the stars in the sky. He's speaking in broad hyperbole and metaphor describing that one day God would have this huge family of adopted and restored human beings. Now because of the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, we now understand that anyone can be adopted in the family of God. So that starts uh, that that theme starts in Genesis 12 and it's woven all throughout scripture in fact when you get to the gospels and you get to the book of Acts and Acts records uh, records what happens at the birth of the church and what happens after Jesus resurrected what we see there is a beautiful picture of this uh, family being shaped Acts chapter 2 I'm going to read it for you in verse 6 says this a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. And really, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes upon them, where you have a huge room of people, everyone from different backgrounds and ethnicities and countries and language, when they all hear the gospel in their own language at the same time, miraculously, it's a picture, it's a fulfillment of what Abraham promises Genesis 12. In Genesis, he says, man, the, your, your seed is going to outnumber the sand and the, and the stars. And then in Acts chapter 2, you have this very miraculous occasion where people are hearing the gospel in their own native language. It's hard for us to identify with, isn't it? Because for as long as we've remembered, we've heard the gospel plain and clear in English. I want you to imagine a world where you had to learn Chinese to learn about Jesus. You had to learn Mandarin in order to learn about Jesus. That there was no concept in your current language that could help you, and so you had to go through the trouble of learning another dialect, another language. That was what was at stake in Acts chapter 2, and yet God miraculously provided this wonderful picture of this adopted family coming together as everyone heard their own language. 
in Acts, just like Acts chapter 2 was a, um, a fulfillment of Genesis 12, you get to the end of the book of, uh, end of Scripture in Revelation 7, and we see another fulfillment of that same promise. Revelation 7, I'm going to read it for you, says this, from every nation, from every tribe, and all people in languages, they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying aloud with this voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Isn't that an amazing picture? Every tribe, every people, every language, crying out salvation. So, God's master plan all throughout Scripture, again, is to have this huge family of adopted and restored human beings. We looked at Paul's prayer last week. Today we look at, or we looked at uh, Paul's uh, poem. It's a beautiful poem of, of giving thanks for everything God has done last week. This week we look at his prayer for us. So we begin with this, where Paul gives thanks. And just as a little aside, if you're ever praying and you don't know what to pray for, just start thanking Jesus. Just start taking time to rejoice over everything he's done in your life. You'll be amazed at your posture on what happens in your prayer time. Paul begins by giving thanks. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 and 16 in your Bibles. It says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, look at verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. When Paul heard about the Ephesian church, the two things that stuck out to him was the faith they had in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all God's people. When Paul heard of this, he could do nothing else but give thanks. Faith in Jesus Christ, love for all God's party. I love that faith and love come together to this party. Not one, but both. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for all God's people. You see, the evidence of their participation in the work of God was this. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for God's people everywhere. They are evidence of their participation in the master's plan. Paul gives thanks that their love doesn't exist only for God. But look where the love of God is being expressed. The love for God's people everywhere. You see, the real evidence of God working in our heart is a reaffirmed faith in Jesus Christ, but also our love for all of God's people everywhere. This is why we set aside uh, traditionally a weekend, but now we set aside a month for worldwide missions and local missions as an emphasis of this church. Why? Because the evidence of our participation in God's work is not how big our building is or how big everything is happening here, but how much we love God's people everywhere. It's the evidence of our participation in God's work. I want to read a couple of verses to you. You can jot them down and maybe follow along if you like. We're going to be in 1 John first, 1 John chapter 4. The real evidence of God's work in us is not the love we claim to have for God, but the love we have for all. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 says this. We love each other because God loved us first. And if someone says, I love God, but hate a fellow believer... That person is a liar. 
For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Another verse to jot down, John chapter 13 in the New Testament in the Gospels, John chapter 13 verse 14 says this, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Understand that's a a symbol of servanthood. Jesus, as the leader of this group of disciples, was illustrating what it meant to love people and to serve one another. And even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he took upon him the form of a servant, Philippians tells us, and served the disciples. So he washed their feet. And he tells them here in John 13, verse 14, Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow, so do as I have done for you. Later on in verse 34, he says this, Love each other just as I have loved you. Your love for another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So the real evidence of God's work in us is not so much the love we claim to have in God, but the way our love shows up in the lives of people around us. That is the evidence of God working in us. So I say to you this morning, church, you have faith in God? Where does your love show up? This is what Paul is telling us that he's grateful. He's he's so thankful that the church in Ephesus don't just say they have a faith in God, but it actually shows up in the life, uh, the way they live their lives and the way they love one another. So first of all, Paul gives thanks for the faith they have in the Lord Jesus, but also for the love for God's people. And then Paul describes to them what his prayer is for them, Paul's prayer for them. And Paul's prayer for them is also Paul's prayer for us And he has two parts of his prayer. First of all, he prays that we would know God. That we would know God. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 17, we keep reading. It says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Everyone say those two words. Wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul prayed that the Father would grant the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And when you take those two words and you start talking about them in church, it can get a little um, mysterious. I'm going to give you a revelation. That sounds a little freaky, doesn't it? A little spooky. I'd be scared. What is he talking about here? Because these words, revelation and, 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 uh, and wisdom, this word of wisdom, this spirit of revelation, what, what Paul is actually describing is not something mysterious or spooky or otherworldly. He actually defines it right there in verse 17. This spirit of wisdom and revelation is this, that you would know who God is. He's talking about the spiritual wisdom and insight that you might grow in your knowledge of God. He's not talking about that you may see into the lives of others in a fortune-telling type of way, that you might have the ability to predict events, but it's about deepening and getting better knowledge of who God is. Here's why it's so important to know who God is, because if we don't know who God is, we will have an inaccurate representation of our relationship with God. For instance, if you choose to believe 
uh, God is a vindictive, judgmental father, how does that paint your relationship with him? Because I can tell you as someone who, if we had a, a relationship with someone and you knew that person was vindictive and judgmental, you would hide a lot of things from that person, wouldn't you? You wouldn't let that person in your life. You would keep things close to the chest. You would, uh, you would distance yourself from them. You would not be 100% honest with that person. And if your view of who God is is a judgmental, vindictive father with a, uh, uh, with a fist waiting to cast judgment on you, guess what? You might have a distanced relationship with God. You might not be 100% honest when you're praying. You might not be 100% honest when you are asking for forgiveness. If you have the view of God that he is nothing more than a, a genie in a bottle, a glorified Santa Claus, if you will, how does that paint your relationship with him? What kind of behaviors start to manifest themselves? Well, you start asking for a lot of things, right? You start punching the buttons on the vending machine waiting for whatever you ask to come out in your life. And if it doesn't, how many of you have been to a vending machine and you're just waiting for these Reese's peanut butter cups to come out and they get caught in the hook? And what happens in your heart when you're waiting for something and you've already pushed the button? There's frustration that happens. There's, you might be hangry if I will, if I could. I want you to think about that with your relationship with God. If you are viewing God as nothing more than a genie in a bottle, a vending machine, or a glorified Santa Claus, and you start asking him for very specific blessings in your life with no other relationship with him, and when he doesn't show up, guess what? You will become frustrated. You will become disappointed. And while you might not have a vending machine to shake and rattle, you will shake the very core of who you are. And your relationship with God is painted by your picture of who God is. So Paul says, man, I am praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would know who God is, because it ends up painting every part of your relationship with him. You see, if we would see God for who he really is, our lives would be shaped into wholehearted followers of him. So Paul prays, first of all, that we would know God. Parents, I, 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 I would urge you that you and your spouse, that you would make this the prayer for your children. That they would know who God is. That they would have an accurate portrayal of who God is. I love that in Exodus. We're going to look at it next week, but it's, uh, as we're talking about this, I'm reminded when Moses goes to uh, God and God and him are having these conversations. And at one point, Moses says, I want to see who you are. Show me your glory. And the very first things out of God's mind, our mouth is this, I'm compassionate and I'm merciful. This is who I am. And if we would see God for who he really is, our hearts and our lives would be shaped into wholehearted followers. It's important that we have an accurate portrayal of who God is. So Paul gives thanks. He prays that we would know God. And then he also prays that our hearts would be flooded with the light of Jesus Christ. I feel like Paul is mixing like two or three metaphors here. But stay with him. Look at verse 18. We're just going verse by verse through the first chapter of Ephesians 1, verse 18. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great riches, I'm sorry, great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ Jesus, our Christ from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Just for a moment, we're going to go back to verse 18, where he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So when you see the word heart in Scripture, he's not talking about our physical organ that's in our bodies. He's talking about the storehouse of our experiences. He's talking about our thoughts that have their source and their fountain. That's what he represents in the hearts. And so when Paul is praying that our hearts would be flooded with light so that the rest of our lives would flow out from that, what he's saying is, Uh, I want you to have the right perspective from the storehouse of your experiences, the fountain of your thoughts, and specifically what he's talking about with the light of Jesus, he's talking about this, he's praying that the light of Jesus is what illuminates what is eternal and puts clarity on what is temporary. He says, I want you, the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, might be full of light, might be flooded with the light of Jesus Christ in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. You see, the light of Jesus illuminates what is eternal and puts clarity on what is temporary. And when the light of Jesus floods our hearts, it shapes our values and it helps us discern wisdom from foolishness. And few things give us more securing and enduring hope than simply knowing that God has chosen us, that God has called us, And he has a very specific calling for our lives to fulfill. And when we consider what is eternal and what is temporary, temporary, our lives come into focus. You see, um, if the light of Jesus illuminates what is eternal and puts clarity, clarity on what is temporary, all of a sudden it gives us a prism, a perspective on how we should handle things in our life. For instance, our relationships. If we believe that our timeline with Christ is eternal. And it, the light of Jesus helps illuminate what is temporary. All of a sudden, forgiving someone is now possible. Because we've put it into terms with eternity. It's, um, it's easier uh, to understand the value of our, our money so that we can use it appropriately in our life and not squander it. Um, the light of Jesus illuminates what's eternal, puts clarity on what's temporary. Boy, if we believe in eternity, if we believe our lives are simply a marker for our eternity with our, with our time in, uh, with Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, then it's really easy to sort out our, our sexual ethics. Because we'll want to be faithful, we want to be, we want to be pure and honest with those that God has called us to, because the timeline of our lives is eternal. 
Now, here's the thing. If this life is all there is, then yeah, don't forgive anyone. If we're just keeping score here on earth, then hoard your money. Spend it however you want. Live however you want. If there's no consequences... But what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church is that their, their hearts would be flooded with the light of Jesus because it illuminates what's eternal and puts clarity on what is temporary. Not only that, but the light of Jesus also showcases the greatness of God's inheritance in his people. I'll go back to verse 18, if you would. He says, uh, I pray that your heart, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, I want you to think about getting an inheritance. Um, you have a, fa- a long-distant family member that we're all praying for that leaves you a sum of money, that leaves you an inheritance. I've had the privilege to walk with people at the, the last days of their life, and, and oftentimes it's really, really um, beautiful and touching the way families have fought and taken care of one another with wills and last testaments and other things. One or two times in my time as pastor, I've had the opportunity to walk with people down those same roads, and um, it got messy, to say the least. And the inheritance and the, what was left wasn't what was expected. And I've seen the time and the energy and the emotion invested into what they thought they were receiving only to be disappointed. Paul uses a very specific, curious language. He says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. We usually think only of our inheritance to God that one day we get to live eternally with him and we get to enjoy the splendor of heavens and we get to rejoice in in the full presence of who Jesus is and we often think of our inheritance being received from God. But here, Paul is very specific. Paul wants the Ephesians and us to understand that we are so precious to God That God considers us his own inheritance. Knowing our own brokenness, we wonder how God could find any inheritance in any of us. Yet God can make the riches out of poor men and women because he invests so much in them. He has invested riches of love and wisdom and his glory. So that these things accrue to a rich inheritance in the saints. So this light of Jesus that Paul is praying for illuminates what's eternal and puts clarity on what's temporary. It showcases the greatness of God's inheritance in his own people. But thirdly today, the light of Jesus results in a great power for those who believe. Look again at verse 19 in your notes. It says, his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then verse 19 That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly helms. Paul wanted us to know that we have a great power within us, and the great power in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if we're honest, many of us don't experience this power on a daily basis. 
We might know it from a distance. And yet God wants uh, the resurrection life to be a part of the life of every believer. You see, that same power has the power to raise the addict into wholeness. He has the power to raise the thief from dishonesty. He has the power to raise the proudful from their self-righteousness. He has the power to raise the unbeliever from his unbelief. Romans says it this way, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And with this mighty power available to us, there never needs to be a power shortage in the life of a Christian. In fact, we don't experience the resurrection on, on Easter Sunday. It's not like we have to wait another 49 weeks to be able to look forward to celebrating the resurrection power of Jesus. It has a daily power. It shows up every single day. His mercies are new every single day. And some of you are living life through the lens where you're trying to live off yesterday's mercies. And he has a whole new set of mercies for you. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. Say that with me. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. Now let's change it to lives in me. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in me. That's a resurrection power. That's a power that changes your whole outlook, that changes how you parent, that changes how you go through your day, that changes your integrity, that changes your work ethic, that changes every single aspect of your life. And some of us uh, should tell our face that's what we get to live with. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. If the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, and it is, then the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his power. My heart is burdened that we would live with this resurrection power every single day. That in the morning we would quote Romans 8.11 and say, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in me today. So today, Lord, I walk in the newness of life you have promised. You ever wonder why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, if anyone is in Christ, then old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Because I'll be honest with you, I have my same old body. I have the same amount of debt. I have the same amount of flaws. I have the same amount of hair. So what exactly is so new, Paul? What is so new that you've promised us? Because our lives are the same. Our jobs are the same. Our kids, God bless them, are still the same. What is new? What's new is, is inside of you. In the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. That ought to change something in your life. And Paul's saying this. If it doesn't change something in your life, you are living an incomplete version of the gospel. The light of Jesus results in a great power for those who believe. Verse 20, he says this, He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Those of you who remember when we went through Hebrews last summer or last fall, we know that 
this phrase, uh, Jesus being seated, pictures that the work is finished. That the resurrection power, the resurrection work that called Jesus from the dead, it is finished. Our sins have been uh, paid for. The remedy for our sin has been taken care of, and the work is finished. So we come to verse 21, where he says, For above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is evoked, not only in the present age, but also in the day to come, the one to come. We come to verse 22 and verse 23 as we round up Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul ends with this beautiful picture of God's authority in our life. Verse 22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's so much beautiful imagery here. First of all, God is the head over everything for the church. So our church, for 130 plus years, we have strived to maintain this posture that God is the head of this church. That for the duration of our lives, we will lift high the name of Jesus because he's the head of this church. Verse 23, he defines the church as his body. And then look how he describes that in verse 23. Don't let this skip you. Miss, don't miss the, the, the beauty here. He says, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's the fulfiller of everything in every way. And you remember how we talked about on Easter, how that for generations and generations they had just been waiting for Christ Jesus. They had been waiting for a Messiah. They had been waiting for the Christ to rescue them, to save them from the sin of the world. And yet when he came, many didn't recognize him. And we read that story and we're in awe of, man, how could you miss it? He healed people. He, 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 he taught and he preached and he fulfilled scripture. Um, all the things that he did, he was the very embodiment of who Jesus is. And yet we read the gospels and sometimes uh, we might shake our head and say, man, I can't, you, I can't believe you missed who Jesus is. And then we go through our life. And we go to Monday and, and we say, you know what, God, I got this. It's Monday after all. You could take the day off. And Monday turns into Tuesday and Tuesday turns into March and March turns into April and April turns into the next year. And before you knew it, you're, you're doing life on your own. When he promises that Jesus is the fullness and he fulfills everything in every way. The longing in your heart, Jesus fills in every way. The gap in your understanding of what this life is and what the next life is to come, he fills in every single way. The beauty of who Jesus is, is as we submit to him because he's placed all things under his feet and he has appointed him, Jesus, to be the head over everything in our church. The beauty is when we submit to Jesus he fulfills everything in every single way. 
So today I want, you to, I want you to think about two questions as we close. Question number one is this. Are your values shaped by your perspective? I missed a word there. By your perspective or God's perspective? Remember what we talked about when he said um, he prays that our hearts would be enlightened, that, um, that our lives would be flooded with the light of who Jesus is. And part of what happens is in the light of Jesus, it illuminates what's eternal and puts clarity on what's temporary. So today, are your values shaped by your perspective or God's perspective? Think about the way you spend money, the way you take care of your body, the way you parent your children, the way you go to work, are the values that you hold shaped by your perspective or God's perspective? And then secondly, this morning, I would say this, how much of God's resurrecting power shows up in your everyday life? Boy, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He lives there. He's in you. And Paul's desire for us as a church, primarily, he thanks, he thanks, he thanks God. He says, man, I'm so grateful for their faith in Jesus Christ and how their love shows up for people everywhere. And then he prays specifically. He says, Lord, I pray that they would know who you are. So church, that's my prayer for you this week, that you would know who he is. And then he also prays, boy, that their hearts would be flooded with the light of Jesus. And that's our prayer this morning. Would you bow your head for just a moment as we consider the master's plan in our life? So just for a few moments, I want you to wrestle and think and respond maybe in your own hearts to these two questions we just talked about. Are your values shaped by your perspective or God's perspective? Maybe that's what you needed to hear today. That when you are flooded with the light of Jesus Christ, that it will put clarity on what is temporary and illuminate what is eternal. Maybe you need to have a a moment where you recognize that there's an area of your life that needs God's perspective. What would change right now in your life from God's perspective? How would your life be a little bit different? Are your values shaped by your perspective or with God's perspective? And then the other question I want you to just wrestle through embrace is how much of God's resurrecting power shows up in your everyday life? Would you say all of God's power? Most? Some? None of it? Is God's power reserved for Sunday in your life? Is it reserved for Easter? Boy, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, who breathed new life in Christ Jesus, resurrected Him from the dead, that same Spirit, hold on to your seats, lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. What would it look like if the Spirit of God showed up at work tomorrow with you.
What would it look like tonight if the Spirit of God showed up with you, with your family? What would it look like if the Spirit of God showed up in your checkbook? Boy, the gospel is intended to have impact in all of our relationships. In church, if it doesn't, we're just, we're living this incomplete version of the gospel, something Christ never intended for us to do. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.